morning. morning. Glad you're here with us. I'm Chris, I'm on staff here at Riverstone. Um, Very excited uh, that you've chosen to join us today. Um, If you're new, you've caught us in the middle of a conversation on prayer. And what we've been doing, uh, specifically, uh, what Jesus taught about prayer, and then within that category, the Lord's Prayer, that he taught us how to pray. So let's, we've been reading it um, every week together. And so let's start off just by reading it together. Let's get it up on the screen, guys. We got that? Here we go. You ready? Let's read it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right. So even if you didn't grow up in church, uh, you're probably familiar with the Lord's Prayer, uh, maybe from movies or a picture frame in grandma's house or something like that. The Lord's Prayer has made its way into our collective culture. And when Jesus talked about praying, he gave us something uh, so simple that a child could remember it. And yet, if you look at it, is actually a pretty amazing and comprehensive overview of everything that Jesus taught in his ministry. And one of the things we said last week Um, that we know to be true is Jesus did not give us this prayer intending that every time you go to pray, you have to say these exact words, right? Uh, I often do this. I often say these exact words, but Jesus isn't saying, if you don't say these words exactly, it's not true prayer because we've talked about this at length. There's the whole Psalms, all the prayers of the Old Testament, tons of reasons we believe and understand that Jesus did not mean Okay, if you're going to do this, then you have to say these exact words. And this is huge, right? Thinking if we say the exact right words, something will happen. If what we've said this before, thinking like that is more like a spell. That's actually closer to witchcraft than Christianity. This idea of say this word, stomp twice, throw something over your head and spin around, and then spiritual forces will work in your favor, that's, that's witchcraft. That's a spell, That's an incantation, right? And what prayer is getting at is not harnessing spiritual powers to get them working in your favor. It's not prayer, y'all. The point of prayer is building, growing in a conversational, intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. Now, this is huge. If we don't get off on the right foot, when we go to pray, we end up getting in all sorts of sideways positions when it comes to the Lord, right? This is huge. Isn't the whole of Christianity, isn't the whole thing about like restoring a relation, a personal relation? I mean, if you grew up in church, you just, you know, you just click, you just just turned your brain off when I said personal relationship, right? Isn't the whole thing about restoring this relationship between you and God? Not, not harnessing spiritual powers for yourself, right? Christianity, does, Christianity yeah, really doesn't offer the kind of spiritual power that witchcraft claims to offer, right? You don't manipulate things for your purpose. It's offering you a relationship with God. So we got to get this kind of fundamental groundwork of what the whole thing means, right? How do we facilitate a relationship? How do you facilitate any relationship? You talk to them. I don't know any relationship that can survive long periods of time without communication, right? 
So, I mean, don't, we tend to over-spiritualize this when we start talking about God and Jesus and church and stuff like that, right? How do you grow in a relationship with someone? You, you talk to them. You don't ignore them. You say hello when they walk in the room. How's your day, right? I don't care about whatever sphere of life you're talking about. I don't care about you're talking about your parents, with your, with your spouse, you're talking about with your kids, you're talking about with your job at work. Any relationship that begins to degrade in the area of communication begins to die immediately. If you stop talking to that person, that relationship begins to die. I don't care where it's at, right? So don't over-spiritualize this, y'all. The more attention you give to a relationship, it grows. So it's, it's amazing how many people, you know, put up this really strong front of, I just want to grow with God, you know, I just want to, you know. What do you want to say? It's like, do you talk to them? Sometimes not so much. So what we said last week is it's interesting, or actually for week one, it's interesting that the entire biblical narrative is aimed at this one thing, restoring relationship between man and God, right? The whole Bible pointing to the cross, right? Mending the broken relationships that we can know and enjoy. And yet so many Christians really have zero communication with this God that the cross has claimed to put you in right relationship with. We simply just don't pray often. And we're in church, and I know we don't want to be that honest, right? But if you find yourself, let's just chat, right? If you find yourself a Christian, you're a Christian in here. I'm not assuming everyone's a Christian in here. All right, it's cool. Glad you're here. But if you are a Christian, and you find yourself in a place where prayer feels very alien, distant, uh, you just can't get into it, you don't know what the deal is, right? I, it begs the question for me, like, do I really believe that Jesus has done what he claimed he did? Because it seems to me the reality behind why many self-professing Christians don't pray is because they really don't believe, like we've been saying, that God loves them and that he is near to them, right? So that's the first two weeks you've gotten to this. Uh, our Father in the heavens, that he loves you and that he's near to you. And you know, I'm a hot mess and he's holy and he really can't accept me or love me. Then if you think like that in your head, which many of us do, right? If you go to pray or try to be spiritual or try to do Christian things, the point of you doing those things is to prove to God that you're acceptable, right? To prove to him, see, God, I got this together. I'm doing the right things. I'm going to pray the right words, right? I'm going to attend church. I mean, like, well, once a month, right? Is once a month enough? That's probably enough, right? It's probably most of right? Not really doing any of the bad, visible sins. And at root, what I'm telling you, it's not that you don't, it's not that you just like, you know, you need to pray. You need to just get in there. No, I'm saying you have an issue of faith. You don't believe he loves you. You don't believe he's near to you. Doesn't that just logically make sense? See, and then when we go to pray, because he doesn't love me, because he's not near to me, I got to perform. Let's all, we got to make it work. Everyone's got to, we got to pray more spiritual than God is, right? And get, um, work up all this stuff. And it ends up for so many Christians, hang with me. I know I'm up here spitting and waving around. So, so many Christians, right? You are attempting to earn a place before God by your prayers. And you have, you're on the wrong foot. You've totally missed the whole point of prayer, all right? So instead of, trusting that God has already forgiven you, right? Instead of just reclining into the loving arms of a father who has justified me because of the sacrifice of his son, right? Instead of trusting the cross, instead of believing that I have full access to God, the guilt of my sins been thrown away from me as far as the east is from the west. No, no, I'm, I'm going to earn it, right? Instead of just 
relaxing into that and allowing a, a love relationship with God to begin to flourish. And I'm just going to earn it. All right? I'm just going to pray harder. All right? And we've been parking on this. Because I, I'm telling you, man, I believe this is why you don't pray. Because <laughs> you don't believe this. That's why prayer is always an issue of faith. See, for you, God is angry. He's up there holding lightning bolts, waiting for you to make one wrong step. Right? And as soon as you do, mm, flat tire right? Of, of course we don't pray to a God like that. Of course we don't talk to him. He's against us, right? He's up there trying to get me saying, if I don't jump over this Christian hoop and jump through this thing and do this thing, volunteer in kids ministry, oh, he's not going to love me, right? <laughs> By the way, we do need more volunteers in kids ministry. Um, <laughs> See, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, man. I don't care. It's same for me. Can I say that? I got the mic. Same for me. I continually devolve into the thinking that I'm not accepted by God. I'm not loved by God. I'm a hot mess. That seems more real to me than the cross. Can we just be real? Does anyone just relate to the idea that my sins are bigger than and stronger than the cross? Like Jesus, you don't know what it feels like. Oh, oh yes, he does, Right? It became flesh, became hand. Does anyone want to just, just reckon with the fact for a second that so often our sins are so overwhelming to us that when we go to pray, we think we got to do this, we got to say that right, we got to do all these things right so that we can deal with all that stuff, and then maybe God will accept us. Man, you've, you've, you've not believed the basics of the gospel. And it's why you don't pray. That God loves you deeply as a father loves a son and that he is near to you as near as the air around us. And I'm telling you, Christian, if you will begin to believe this in earnest, your prayer life will be transformed. You will find yourself talking to a God who loves you and who's near to you more often than not. Listen, the idea that you can muster the moral effort needed to finally get over all your sins and all your, be lovable God, like it's a fool's errand, y'all. Like, God's way too holy, and you are way too messed up to ever <laughs> reconcile that relationship, right? And you may be more disciplined than others. You may even be able to control certain impulses more than others, but you will never earn the right to stand before a holy God. Read Galatians, all right? So for many Christians, for many, listen to the words coming out of my mouth, for many Christians, God's love, God's grace his forgiveness is essentially wasted because they think it is up to them to prove that they are lovable and righteous. And we miss the beauty of God's word because the Bible will confront and address your brokenness and sins more honestly and severely than you'd like. And at the same time, bestow more honor and love on you than you'd like, right? We tend to want to earn it. All right? And that's what we're used to, because then we can boast about it to everyone else, and we can look down our noses on other people that haven't earned it like we have. I'm going to say something. The gospel deflates all that pride. They know Christians with swagger. All right? You don't get that if you're a Christian. All right? When we struggle to believe in God's love, everything in the Christian life turns backwards. Okay? We study and we pray in order to master something so that we can prove we're in instead of engaging with a God who has already loved us and is mastering us. Bishop Foster talks about it. It's silly to talk about mastering prayer when the whole goal is to be mastered. 
So I've just been saying on repeat, you're already in, man. You're already in. He's near to you. He loves you deeply. The work is done. Your guilt has been dealt with. Jesus made sacrifice for your sin once and for all, then sat down at the right hand of the Father. And if you've been here a while with us, you might be thinking, Chris, wow, you are really, you're really trying to build us up, man, you know? But listen, <laughs> I'm not trying to build you up near as much as the Bible does. Because what the Bible's gonna say, you know what the Bible's gonna say God's love has done to you? Not just forgiven, not just redeemed, not just restored, not just renewed, but made you heirs with Christ, co-heirs with the Son of God. The Bible is going to say it seated you in the heaven. I haven't said anything crazy like that, man. Like, that's crazy. Like the Bible is going to say that about you. If you step into the uh, faith that God loves you, he's near to you, he's done what he said he's done, it says you are heirs with Jesus seated in the heavenly realms, right? You're seated. I mean, I haven't said anything that crazy. The Bible is going to say that. So if, if prayer has always been a, difficult for you, the root of that difficulty may be a struggle to actually believe and embrace, believe and embrace what the Apostle John called the lavish love of God. Not just towards humanity as a whole, but towards you as an individual. Put your name in that spot, right? That he loves you. We just struggle with it, y'all. In fact, we struggle with it so much that the writers of the New Testament would pray for their church to have strength to comprehend the depths and the love of, the, of God, the depths, the heights, the length, the love of God. There's a prayer in the New Testament about that. Lord, give them strength to understand and comprehend, not the rules, <laughs> not all the, no, give them strength to comprehend how much you love them, right? That's a prayer in the New Testament. It's amazing, right? We struggle to believe this, and therefore we turn prayer into a spiritual rung that we climb of moral uh, achievement, right? And Jesus isn't saying, say these exact words and you'll prove you're spiritual and God will accept you. But rather, I think sharing with us the, in the Lord's prayer, the guiding realities that led his own prayer life, right? That he intended to daily lead the prayers of his disciples. Okay, does that make sense? So, which is first and foremost, which is what we've said, Sir, this prayer serves to remind our hearts who we are praying to, right? Not an angry, demanding God, a universe away from you, but a loving Father who's near to you, our Father in the heavens. That's the address. It only took us a month <laughs> to get through it, all right? Then the prayer moves into the requests portion. And really the rest of the prayer, if you look at it, you know, with your brain, is requests after this bit, right? Uh, that makes up the rest of it. The request, in the first request that we are given is concerning the desire for and priority of the glory of God in the life and thinking of a disciple. So the first request that we see in the Lord's Prayer is a desire for and a priority of the glory of God in the life and thinking of the disciple. The first request is this, hallowed be your name, right? So we all know what that means, because we use hallowed all the time in our language, right? It's a hallowed car right there. No, we don't use that word. Uh, the closest thing we have to it maybe is Halloween, right? That's, and it's not what we're getting. That's not very helpful. Or maybe, maybe hallowed ground. Do we use that sometimes? Like a graveyard, right? It's hallowed ground. What does this mean? What does hallowed be your name mean? Well, we might also recognize something maybe a little more is the root word in this, this word is holy, right? Holy, but yet again, still not a word we use very often, right? No time. Like you grew up in church, at best, right, you think being holy has something to do with moral excellence, 
And that's good, right? Moral purity, right? right? And at worst, if you grew up in church, you associate being holy with having to dress up in uncomfortable clothes and being quiet, right? Because this is a holy place, which really means like this is a place where you can't have any fun. You have to be serious, right? When the Bible, when the biblical authors talk of holiness, at its root, it simply means set apart, set apart. That's really what the word's getting at. In other words, this thing, this thing, whatever it's talking about, you know, an item, a person, a thing, it's, it's unique, it has one, per, it has a designated intention. And that, that designated intention sets it apart from anything else that might be like it. That's what the word means. It's, it speaks of uh, a designated uh, intention. It also speaks of the process of designating that thing for a specific purpose. Are we chatting? I'm using a lot of, I don't know, right? So it's, 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 that's been designated as this. It's also the process of being, or the church words are, sanctified or cleansed or purified. Many times in the New Testament, those words are interchangeable. Holiness, sanctified, purified, right? And it's talking about restoring something to its original uniqueness, its original purpose, right? So to talk of a place as holy, like when, Mo, when God tells Moses, take off your shoes, for this is holy ground. It means that this place is now designated for the purposes of God. It's altogether different. Now, it may have been a normal place before, but now God has made it holy, different, unique, right? On Genesis 2, 3, it says, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, right? What does that mean? Unique, set apart, to be different, to be regarded as something that is unique, right? I can't, I, 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 these are all the words I can come up with, right? It has to do with intent, right? What's interesting in the case, in Moses' case, is that he didn't know he was standing on holy ground. He had to be told, which is so interesting and begs the question for me how much we often miss it, right? What we also see in the Bible is a whole lot of not just God making things holy, right? Which we see a lot of, but so interesting, so great. God inviting his people to participate with him in making things holy, right? The process, God over and over and over in the Bible is inviting his people into the process of making things, keeping things holy. So in Exodus 28, we're told to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So God made it holy and he says, now you keep it holy. Keep it set apart. Honor it as such. Keep it designated to the purposes for which I designated it, right? Therefore, in the Bible, holiness, this is a huge sentence right here. Holiness is always a joint effort between God and his people. That, that helps, that clears up a whole lot of confusion in Christian circles, y'all. Holiness will always be a joint effort in between God and his people. This idea of set this apart for me, to me, designate this for me. Uh, in the Old Testament, we see also as to the Lord, unto the Lord. That's why the Old Testament is full of that phrase, holy unto the Lord, which means, stay with me, I know we're getting intellectual today, which means the moral excellence component of holiness, right? Isn't just obeying the rules. But rather, moral excellence is simply a consequence of giving up your own intentions for, for God's intentions, right? right? So in other words, you can be, from all external judgments, 
a person of moral excellence and still not be holy because you are simply obeying the rules for other various benefits of obeying the rules, not setting your life apart to God, for God, for his purposes, right? You're not setting, you're not designating your being for the purposes of God. You're just obeying the rules so you can be morally excellent and not a holy person. This is obviously what Jesus was addressing when he addressed the Pharisees, right? They looked holy from the outside, but were not in the internal realities of their life surrendering to God, but rather were using the rules for their own purposes and intentions, right? Therefore, we're not holy, right? So that's, that's holy. It's unique, set apart. Now, why on earth did Jesus say, Lord, to teach us to pray that God's name be made holy? Like, does God need your help being made holy? Like, isn't he holy by definition? Isn't he like the standard? Like, what is Jesus getting at? Well, it helps that he says, hallowed be your name. So today, just like back then, your name has honor or dishonor associated with it based on the information people have about you, right? So in, in uh, Proverbs 22, 1, it says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. So is it saying like a good, is it saying like chips, a dumb name? And Steve, like Steve's a good name, right? No, sorry, Eric, your name stinks, right? Should have gone with Steve. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about reputation, isn't he? We know that. We talk when it says name. So if you went around telling everyone that Chris, me, Chris Westbrook, is a liar and a cheater, it would be said you are name smearing, right? AKA maligning, slandering, soiling. You're not distorting my actual personhood. I may or may not be a liar and a a cheater in reality. You are soiling my name, my reputation, right? So we get more of that, more enough of that every political cycle, right? And in that instance, it doesn't really matter if it's true, just what people believe. See, politicians know a very simple truth that reputations can be created and destroyed pretty easily, and they're pretty good at doing it. So I heard um, uh, Bible scholar Matt, uh, I'm sorry, his name is Tim Mackey, Give an example of this idea of kind of cultural reputation being smeared, right? Uh, And then what it means then to be made unique again in our imaginations. And if you were born uh, in the 80s, like me, you might relate with this. Um, And especially if you were born in the 80s and uh, before being a nerd made as much money as it now makes, you know, like... (laughs) It wasn't popular back then, right? You might have grown up watching the original Star Wars, okay? New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. Now, when those came out, when those came out, it was nothing like any other sci-fi movie had ever produced, all right? It was altogether different. It was, I mean, revolutionary on multiple levels, right? From its filming technique to its special effects, right? To the storyline. Like it was, it was groundbreaking. <laughs> I was wondering like who's rolling their eyes right now. Oh. <laughs> right. And it created this cult following of like hardline loyalists, right? No other sci-fi especially Star Trek, was, any, <laughs> was anything, and if you disagree, you're dead to me. Okay, then in, in, in 1999, okay, George Lucas decided it was finally time to film the prequels, all right? And in the prequels, he included the silver bullet that killed all of the hopes and dreams of all Star Wars fans, Jar Jar Binks, right? And with one character, 
and a bunch of other poor plot lines and overkill on CG ruined the name of Star Wars. Maybe, maybe irreparably, okay? Some of you who are not into this are like, this is the dumbest sermon I've ever heard. And for 10 sad years, right, Star Wars lost its place of cinematic respect in the world, right? And then in 2015, Disney comes out with The Force Awakens, which seemed to promise to reestablish the golden days of the Star Wars era. Maybe a swing and a miss. I don't know. Depends on who you ask. I'd argue Rogue One is the best shot at it, but that's just me. Okay, now, super silly illustration, okay? But you get the point, right? Here's this thing in our culture imagination that develops a collective reputation over time, right? We all have a perspective about it, and then with one fail swoop, crashes and burns, right? And it mars the reputation. And then these other things come along and maybe reestablish the collective reputation of this thing. Now, it's a silly illustration. The request to make God's name holy is asking, to make his reputation on the earth known. Let them know you as you are, right? So when Jesus says, hallowed be your name, he's not saying, make your name, make yourself more holy, God. He's saying, make your reputation known in the earth. He's saying, let your name be honored in the earth. Let it be totally set apart, totally unique, totally different than anything all of us have ever known, right? He's saying, be honored, be high and lifted up. Let everyone on earth know that you are totally amazing and set apart, yes. that you're different, that you are unlike anything we've ever known. He's saying, let your rep, be more specifically, he's saying, let your reputation on the earth be accurate to who you really are in our thinking, in our thinking, right? Because we all have a perception of who God is in our minds, don't we? Angry at you, like we conflate Greek gods with him, we conflate a bunch of other stuff, we conflate our own fathers with God, and we develop an image in our mind that may or may not be accurate to who God really is. And what Jesus is saying is when we say, hallowed be your name, he's saying, Lord, help us know you as you really are. Not some weird, contrived image that we've come up with in our head, but as you are revealed in the Bible, right? Who you are, right? Praying hallowed be your name is asking God to open the eyes of friends and family and neighbors to God's great worth and value so everyone on the earth knows how completely wonderful and beautiful he is. Therefore, praying hallowed be your name is the natural longing for every person who has tasted and seen that God is the most satisfying, glorious, life-giving being in the universe. Because when you experience something as overwhelmingly life-giving and joyful, the natural response is to want other people to experience that thing as you've experienced it, right? That's just the natural outflow. Therefore, praying hallowed be thy name is essentially evangelistic in nature. Let everyone else know, God. Let them know who you are. Correct their image of you to be who you really are in reality, right? It's a fundamentally evangelistic in nature, right? Lord, let everyone know that heaven is your throne and earth is your footstool. God, let everyone know that you are not like us. You are slow to anger and quick to love. Let everyone know, Jesus, that you put the lonely in families. Let everyone know that you defend the rights of orphans and widows. God, let everyone know that your ways are higher than ours, right? 
It is evangelistic in nature. It is wanting to share with other people that which you have experienced of God, of his goodness, right? So one of the first ideas guiding Jesus' own prayers is not simply who God is in reality, that he is holy, that he is loving, that he is near, but a desire that everyone else know that too, that he is holy, that he is loving, that he is near, right? That we would know in our minds, in their minds, the realities of his goodness, right? That his reputation would be established in the earth, right? Let your value, let your beauty be known in the earth. So what's all that mean, right? Well, it means this, and we'll wrap it up, right? That all of the lies that people believe about God would be broken in the name of Jesus. That's what you're praying. God, all of the Christians out there who are determined to earn their way before you, let that be broken in the name of Jesus. God, all of the people out there in bondage to sin and guilt and shame, let that be broken in the name of Jesus, right? Be exalted. That's what, that's what the prayer means. That's strike two for you. That's what the prayer... I just, I just, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Right, right, sorry, I'm sorry. Because some of us have ideas about God that are as about, here it is. Some of us have ideas about God that are about as impactful as the bobblehead Jesus desk toy. You ever seen the bobblehead Jesus desk toy? You know, many of us have an experience of Christianity that understands Jesus about as impactfully as we would understand a Jesus bobblehead desk toy. You want Jesus in your life, right? Your life, you want him in there? Well, I don't know, it's fine. Does it, will it make my desk look good? Like maybe like have a little conversation, maybe a light conversation from here to now, right? From someone. And so my prayer for this place has been, has often been, Jesus, would you take our conceptions of you and align them with who you are in reality. So often I pray, I pray for you guys all the time. And we pray in that room before the service. Oftentimes I pray, Lord, let us know you as you really are. Not some bobblehead Jesus, right? And so the picture that I've had in my mind for a long time, y'all, is that Jesus would take your perception of him, which for many of us is a bobblehead Jesus desk toy, right? And you would, he would enlarge, I think of this picture of this desk toy just getting bigger and bigger and bobblehead, you know, right? But, but it would make, he would enlarge, enlarge, enlarge himself to where, because in many of our hearts and minds, we are the dominant um, geographical form in the landscape of our lives. We dominate the landscape of our imagination. Our, we, our desires dominate the internal realities of our hearts and lives. And my prayer for us has always been, Jesus, man, take yourself, take our perception of you and, and increase it and exalt it and magnify it and lift it up to where you, Jesus, begin to dominate the geography of our lives and hearts, right? The inside. So in other words, what uh, Richard Foster says is that in prayer, he prays that we would uh, uh, experience a Copernican revolution. Do you know who Copernicus is? Yeah, Nicholas Copernicus. He was a uh, Polish mathematician and astronomer in the Renaissance era who contradicted the Roman Catholic ideas of uh, astrology, right, and the, the universe. And he suggested that the earth was not the center of the universe, but rather the sun was the center of the heliocentric uh, idea about, the, about uh, the, the universe. And of course, Rome thought the earth is the center of the universe, Rome is the center of the earth, and who is the center of Rome? The Pope. And so uh, Copernicus uh, suggested the, uh, this, that, that 
the, the Pope wasn't the most powerful man in the universe, basically. And they said, no, no, no. In fact, later on, Galileo, because of his uh, a belief in the heliocentric view, uh, was put under house arrest for the last 10 years of his life by the church because he refused to uh, admit that, you know, the earth wasn't the center of the universe, so that makes sense, right? He had the, he had the audacity to suggest the sun was the center. So anyway, the whole point is this, that in praying, in prayer, that my prayer for us is that we would have, we would experience some sort of Copernican revolution in our hearts and lives, where we begin to slowly, maybe even imperceptibly, shrink and shift from the center of our world, and Jesus begins to take center stage in our thinking. That's what it means when we say, hallowed be your name. Because what we believe as Christians, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, is that Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is everything, I mean, creator of the universe, right? There's no bigger, no more beautiful, no more glorious, no more wise being in the universe. And what we're praying when we say, hallowed be thy name, is God, help me understand you as such. Make your name like that in my mind, your reputation. Foster says this, in God's time and in God's ways, a Copernican revolution takes place in our heart. Slowly, almost imperceptibly, there is a shift in our center of gravity. We pass from thinking of God as part of our life into the realization that we are part of his life. Right? Amen, so be it. So this might be totally irrelevant to you because you don't pray and have no intentions of becoming a person of praise and you don't, you know, whatever. But if you desire to grow in the grace of God. If the inner transformation of your heart and life is appealing to you, I have a, a very uh, crazy idea for us, right? I, I want to actually suggest something, right, that we can do. And I know the deal. We're in church, and we, and we all nod our heads and say amen, then do absolutely nothing about it, right? That's the deal. That's right? like the unspoken rule of church, right? But I want, I want to challenge you, right, to actually do something about this. I want you this week to get alone, Okay. For many of us, and like me, that means getting up at a horrible hour before my kids. It's absolutely horrible, right? <laughs> I want you to get alone, right? I want you to get your Bible out. And this is, this, is how, this is how I do it. I read some of the Bible, and I allow the character of God that I'm reading about, right, to lead me into talking to him. Right? So, I, so I remind my heart who he is, who I'm talking to. I'm, oppressing a fa- I'm, I'm a, a pr- addressing a father who loves me, who's near to me. He's called me his kid. Right? He's dealt with my sin. And I let that just kind of sit in my mind and my imagination. Right? And then allow the character of God to draw me into worship. And this is how I do that. I start reminding my heart who scripture clearly says he is. Right? Sometimes the, the Bible can help you do that. But sometimes you just know. If you grew up in the church, you might know that he resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well, just remind your heart of that. Remind your heart that he's removed your sins as far as the east is from the west, that he defends the rights of orphans and widows. And if you're like, well, you're a pastor or you have to, no, dude, have internet access, all right? Look, I just Google it, right? Like, uh, you know, verses about who God is, right? And a hundred scriptures pop up and I let those things just kind of marinate in my soul and spirit. And guess what happens? Worship begins to happen. Like I just start praying and all of a sudden I'm worshiping a God who I'm adoring because of the realities of scripture before me. And then I'm laying my request before a God who loves me and is near to me. Look, I want you to actually try to do this. I want you to actually try to do it. I, do, I dare you. Get alone. Google search 100 verses about the character of God, right? Who God is, right? And let those scriptures just marinate over your imagination and your mind and dare to believe what the Bible says about who God is, right? And as your heart starts rejoicing in his goodness, the natural outflow is, Lord, let other people know how amazing you are. Let my family know. Let my kids know. Jesus, let my kids know. God, let them know. God, show, show them in their hearts and imaginations your beauty and your wonder. God, let my coworkers know. 
that you're beautiful, that you're gracious, that you remove the guilt of sin. Let them know, God, right? Let them see you as you are beautiful and exalted over all creation, right? And if that sounds kind of like self-induced and is that biblical, read the Psalms, man. Like the psalmist, the psalmist like talks to his soul. Why are you so downcast, soul? <laughs> but you're hoping God. All I'm saying is just, just try, just try it. Let's stand together and pray.